Good evening. Welcome to the Midtown Schuyler Bookstore. My name is Alex Brubaker. Thank you for joining us in Harrisburg this evening. We're so pleased to have you here at the Schuyler for the book launch for Joel Burkett. Yeah. I have the, the distinct honor of introducing our fine speakers we have here this evening. To my far left is Harvey Friedenberg. Harvey is a retired attorney who has been writing about books since 2005, and in that time, he has written 850 reviews and essays for publication. He is a member of the National Book Critics Circle and writes for print publications and websites that include BookPage, Book Reporter, Shelf Awareness, The Berg, and Kirkus Reviews, as well as many other various literary blogs. He has appeared as a panelist in programs on book reviewing and publishing at the Delaware Book Festival, the Harrisburg Book Festival, and several local libraries, and has spoken on copyright and contract law for writers at the Penn Writers Conference and York Book Expo. Harvey served on the board of the Dauphin County Library System for 17 years, including two years as its president, and for several years was a member of the selection committee for the One Book, One Community program. Our man of the hour here is Joel Burkat. He is an environmental and energy lawyer. Drink to Every Beast is his debut novel, and he has a number of published short stories. He was selected as the 2019 Lawyer of the Year in Environmental Litigation for Central PA by Best Lawyers in America, and he has been designated by both Super Lawyers and Best Lawyers for Environmental and Oil and Gas Law. He lives in Harrisburg, PA with his wife, Gail, and they have two daughters, a son-in-law and granddaughter. Of course, we are all here tonight for Joel's brand new book, Drink to Every Beast, it's received some uh, pretty wide acclaim. Don Heelan writes that Burkat uses his extensive knowledge as an environmental lawyer to serve up a mix of toxic waste, corruption, and greed to launch a spine-tingling thriller that will make you want more. Jeff Gunhus writes that Joel Burkat knows the science and the ins and outs of the law, but he truly understands and captures human nature with all its strengths and weaknesses. Huge thank you to Harvey and Joel for visiting us in Harrisburg this evening. So without further ado, let's give them a warm uh, round of applause. Thanks, Alex. <clears throat> okay, Alex, thank you. Uh, I've done a few of these events here over the last couple years. This is by far the rowdiest crowd. <laughs> so hold your applause until the end, because we've got a lot of ground to cover. So Joel, welcome to the Midtown Scholar. Uh, congratulations on the publication of Drink to Every Beast. I know uh, this is an exciting uh, event for you, and we're all looking forward to hearing uh, more about the book, about the process of, uh, of writing it. And so let's, uh, let's get started to sort of set the stage uh, with you uh, giving us a little introduction to what the novel's about and, um, and, and sharing for us, uh, uh, sharing with us an excerpt from, uh, from the book, just to give uh, perhaps those of us who, uh, in the audience who haven't read it yet a little flavor of what the book is about. Thanks, Harvey. All right, so I'm going to read to you uh, from chapter one, not the whole chapter, just a part of it. A fly buzzed Peter's face, and he opened his eyes. He cursed and swatted. Then his eyes grew wide with horror. The canoe, with their shirts and cell phones, was drifting downstream. Oh, shit, the canoe. 
Peter let go of Cindy and raced toward the water, hopping from the boulders to the sandy riverbank. He glanced over his shoulder. We've got to get it before it goes too far downstream. Help me. Cindy pressed one of her arms across her breast and followed him into the water. Peter waded in about 10 feet behind the canoe. The water deepened. He dove in and swam as hard as he could. He passed the tunnel. The putrid odor made him gag. Dead fish brushed his lips, grazed his chest, and disintegrated against his hands. Slime streaked his flesh. He held his head above the noxious gray water pouring from the shaft, Cindy just a few feet behind him. Peter reached the canoe about 20 feet from the shore. Cindy screamed as he grabbed the gunwale. Peter, my eyes are burning. There's something on my face. It's on fire. Cindy rubbed her eyes and face. Peter released the canoe and reached for Cindy. She flailed in the water, her skin a sickening crimson. Then he started burning too. His arms were bright red. Blisters sprouted on his hands. What the hell? Peter yelled as he coughed and retched. Cindy bobbed helplessly, no longer swimming. Peter, she wailed, her face streaked with tears, blood, and filth. Already gasping for breath, she coughed and allowed the venom into her mouth. Gobs of mucus and bile poured from her lips and nose. Peter reached for her arm, and she screamed at his touch. Cindy screamed. Then her scream became a howl. Then her howl became a shriek. She stopped screaming only when her voice gave out. Okay. That's a pretty dramatic beginning to uh, a book that... Uh, is billed as an environmental legal thriller. Uh, and you, for many years, uh, were an environmental lawyer, uh, practicing first with the Commonwealth and then in private practice for, uh, for quite a few years. Um, how did you draw on your background as an environmental lawyer to write this novel? I, I drew on it extensively. Uh, as Harvey said, I uh, became an environmental lawyer back in 1980 and worked for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania at what was then called the Department of Environmental Resources and worked there for three years. And then for the last uh, 26 years, I've worked as an environmental lawyer in private practice. And so um, really, I, I tried to put everything I know about uh, the environment, environmental science, environmental law into this story, but also write it in a way uh, that was exciting and interesting and a thriller and, and not just some sort of dry uh, legal text. Um, so I, I put a lot of that into it. Also, as they say, uh, the story is uh, ripped from the headlines. So to a certain extent, uh, this part of the story anyway is based on a real event that actually occurred in Pennsylvania a number of years ago. So this is a book about illegal dumping of toxic waste. That's the sort of the foundation of the, the story. Uh, just to educate the, all of us a little bit about that problem, how big a problem is that in Pennsylvania right now? It's been a huge problem over the years in Pennsylvania. Illegal dumping is kind of the, uh, the cheap way of getting rid of toxic waste. It can cost thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars, to get rid of toxic waste the right way. And over the uh, decades, it's been, uh, illegal dumping has been the, the cheap way of getting rid of it. In northeastern Pennsylvania, which is underlain by uh, deep mines, abandoned deep mines for the most part now, there are still old boreholes that go down to the abandoned deep mines. And um, it has been a practice in some places uh, to actually dump waste into those boreholes. The problem is the waste goes down into the borehole. It hits the, um, the abandoned deep mine. And those deep mines were, were actually designed by the old Welsh uh, coal mine uh, engineers to drain into the Susquehanna River. So um, the, the toxic waste would hit the, uh, the mine, and then it would drain into the Susquehanna River. And this actually. Uh, uh, became a gigantic issue uh, in, in a big case 
that occurred in the late 1970s, early 1980s. And to this day, though, there's still, uh, there's still quite a bit of uh, uh, illegal dumping that goes on in Pennsylvania. Um, and in fact, DEP still devotes a, a section of its website uh, to trying to uh, identify and catch illegal dumpers. So why did you decide to write about this subject in a work of fiction rather than writing about it as a, as a lawyer from a legal perspective? Well, um, you're, in a way, you're asking about my journey as a fiction writer, and I'm going to give props to uh, uh, several people as we're going along here. Um, I started writing fiction about a dozen years ago, and I was writing short stories. And uh, one day, bumped into Carl Schumann, who unfortunately is not here today, but who many of you know. And Carl um, asked me a simple question. He said, how's your novel coming along? And I was with Gail, and I said, I'm not writing a novel. And he said, well, why not? And so we walked home and I said, why not? So I went home, I went up to my writing room and I started writing a novel. Now that novel was about the 1950 Phillies and it took me about a year to write. And when that was done, I uh, went back to what I'd been doing previously, which was sitting with Gail watching television at night. And uh, after about a week or so of that, I thought to myself, I'm not enjoying the television part. I think I'm gonna go back up and write another novel. And so I went upstairs and I started writing my second novel, which was this one. Mm -hmm. And um, I've written a lot of nonfiction, a lot of uh, uh, legal uh, uh, works. I've edited two gigantic uh, law books, one on environmental law, one on oil and gas law in Pennsylvania. And I've written maybe a dozen law review articles, and I've written dozens and dozens of legal papers that have been published. And um, I, I love writing fiction. Writing fiction, reading fiction and writing fiction are two things that I really, really enjoy. So to be able to uh, do uh, some of the same things that I was doing for a, a legal audience, but to do it for a more general audience, and also to do it in a way that is able to be appreciated by a general audience, uh, to me was something that I uh, really enjoyed the opportunity of doing. Were, were there any pitfalls in making the transition from the kind of legal writing you had done to writing fiction? At yeah. least, especially on a subject that you had written about as a lawyer. Yes, the biggest pitfall is that I write like a lawyer. And uh, the only ones who really want to read that are judges, and even they, I think, are not always happy to be reading that, as right. you know. Right. Um, so um, you have to untrain yourself. I mean, from the day you start law school, which for me was back in 1977, you're trained not only to think like a lawyer, but to write like a lawyer. And there's a certain style of writing uh, that you have to do as a lawyer. And I, um, you know, I, I think I did that pretty well, um, but you have to untrain yourself and you have to write in a, an entirely different way when you're writing fiction. So the biggest pitfall, pitfall for me was not writing like a lawyer. And when you wrote this novel, you were a full-time practicing lawyer, is that right? Yes. So how did you balance the writing with your law practice, which of course was quite busy at the time? The same way porcupines mate, carefully. Okay. Uh, it was, I had this day job and my day job uh, was a full-time job and I felt an obligation to, um, to my law firm to give them a full day. And uh, I would start to write at night at about eight or nine o'clock at night. And then I would write for two or three hours. And the good thing was, because I was doing something entirely different, it was really a uh, very, very different part of my brain that I was using. And I would get a second win, so I would start writing at eight or nine o'clock and I would write until um, 11 o'clock or midnight. And if I was really cooking, I would go later. Uh, so I would write uh, two, three hours a night. I tried to do that four or five days a week, including Sunday. And uh, so it was, it was a daily thing to try to do my law job, which I 
felt an obligation to keep up with on a full-time basis, mm -hmm. and also to try to be a writer. And, and let me also say, many, many writers, and I've met quite a few of them, do something similar to that. They have a day job, and then they do their writing maybe on weekends, or they, you know, uh, Nicole Bernier, uh, her husband gives her a weekend away every other week, and she mm -hmm. goes off to a hotel someplace and spends the weekend writing. So there are other writers, they, they figure out a way of doing it and maintaining their, their day jobs, and, and that's what I did. Were there times when your fictional characters followed you out of the writing room? Um, my fictional characters are always with me. Okay. So, um, yes, and I think when I knew that I probably should be a writer rather than a lawyer was when I stopped dreaming about uh, legal matters that would wake me up at 3 o'clock in the morning and uh, my characters would wake me up at 3 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And usually they were telling me something that I had missed in the story or advising me on something that needed to go into the story. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's hard to describe without sounding like you've got schizophrenia, but to a certain extent you do, um, because your, your characters really do start talking to you after a while. Mm -hmm. uh, Nicole Bernier, again, uh, likes to refer to them as her imaginary friends. And to a certain extent they are, but. Uh, when you're when you're really um, writing for a character or writing a scene and it's and you're very intensely into it, uh, the characters are constantly whispering to you. Were there ever times during a deposition or a hearing where you thought, "Oh, this would make a great scene in my novel"? Always. Okay. <laughs> I'm thinking that right now. Okay. And what did you do? Did you ask for a recess so you could write it down? No, but I might have made a note to myself to come back later and, okay. and put something in. Good. Uh, so this book's been billed as an environmental legal thriller, and there, as I understand it, there are genres and sub-genres within the, the legal thriller realm. What, what did, what's the definition of an environmental legal thriller? I'm glad you asked that question, because I just wrote a blog post on that. You're obviously looking at my blog, okay. which I'm very happy to Surreptitiously. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, there, there are... There used to be a time when any book that dealt with an environmental issue was called an eco-thriller. And now I think it's uh, better to say that there are three different kinds of genres, eco-thrillers, environmental thrillers, and environmental legal thrillers. So an eco-thriller today, I would say, is a book that is um, one that talks about a calamity that's a worldwide calamity. So a good example of that would be James Patterson's Zoo. So some of you read the book, some of you may have seen the uh, television show that, was, that that was based on, where for whatever reason, all of the animals of the world turned against humans. And as a result of that, uh, you know, created a very difficult worldwide situation. Or um, uh, Preston and Child have written some great books. One of the books that they've written, uh, 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 Relic, is about a monster that follows uh, some people to the New York, uh, to the New York uh, American History Museum. So they're like worldwide calamities. They're 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 you know almost science fiction books, if you will. That's an eco thriller. Environmental thrillers are books that, um, that are more real-life situations. So um, probably the granddaddy of all of those is um, Edward Abbey's uh, The Monkey Wrench Gang. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure some of you read The Monkey Wrench Gang, about a group of people who are, uh, who are activists uh, against uh, development in the West. There are other books. Uh, Pam Lazos has written a nice book called Oil and Water, again, about a real-life kind of situation. An environmental legal thriller, which is what I write, would be a book um, about lawyers and, and their involvement with the environment. Uh, the person who's actually written the most of those books is John Grisham, who's written uh, The Pelican Brief that I'm sure some of you have either read or seen the movie, The Appeal, Gray Mountain. 
So I'm coming for John Grisham. Okay. So you've mentioned some writers who, who I guess were role models for this kind of book. Are there any others that uh, particularly influenced you in writing it? Um, well, Grisham is probably the best. I mean, Grisham has written the uh, most uh, environmental legal thrillers of anybody that's out there. And honestly, I've been searching and I've found very few other environmental legal thrillers. He's written three, and he writes terrific legal thrillers. Um, someday I'll have to sit down and talk to him about some of the environmental aspects of his books. Okay. But he's, a, uh, he's, a, he's, you know, he's probably the best role model that I've had. Okay. So when, at what point did you say, okay, I'm finished with this book? How many years ago did, was this book, in your mind, done? It took me about a year to write this book. Okay. And after that year of writing, you, you get to a certain point when you're done writing, you write the end. I actually have a little tradition. As I'm about to write the end, I call Gail into my writing room and I say, and I wa have her watch me as I type the end. And that's what I've done now five times. So that's my little tradition. So that's when I know that the, 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 the basic words are on the page. But at that point, uh, the rewriting begins. Right. And there's a, uh, you can spend weeks to months rewriting the story. And uh, then the editing process begins. And in this case, it probably took me a good six months or so to finish that process uh, altogether. So about a year to write and maybe another six months or so to edit. And then um, I, I was having difficulty finding a publisher, so I went on and started writing another book, my third novel, and um, would come back to this from time to time and fiddle with it or I'd think of something that I wanted to change up. Uh, I got serious about the book again about a year ago, and uh, Jason Liller is here, my editor, and uh, Jason edited the book, and that really made it hum. I, was, it was, I thought it was pretty good before, but Jason did a great job of editing the book, and at that point, I sent it out uh, to a uh, publisher, and uh, Headline Books agreed to publish it. Okay. So what was the most challenging part of, once you'd written the book, actually getting a publisher to agree to publish the book? Because I, I know it took several years for that uh -huh. process. It's very, very difficult. The uh, agents are um, you know, very, very uh, selective. They are the gatekeepers for the most part in terms of getting a book published. Uh, they are, they're always looking for you know, the, the next Grisham if you're looking for a uh, legal thriller or the next James Patterson and, uh, it's, or the next Lee Child. And uh, it's very, very difficult to get an agent. In my case, I was very fortunate. I, I went to an independent press uh, which does not require an agent, and uh, Headline Books liked my book, but it took me many years of struggling and sending it out over and over again uh, and getting turned down over and over again. The process is you send the book, you send a few pages out, the, the, the agents tell you what they want to see. It can be five pages. That's all they want to see is five pages of your book. And you send them five pages, and if they like the first five pages, then they might ask for three chapters. And then after that, they would ask for the entire manuscript. And so I had a number of instances where agents uh, said they wanted to see three chapters or where they wanted to see the entire manuscript. But I just couldn't get over that last hurdle. And then when I finally had the book edited, I think that made the big difference. So one of the big changes in publishing in the last 10, 15 years is uh, the phenomenon of self-publishing. Uh, was that something that you ever considered in trying to get this book into print? I did consider it, and uh, you know, you get to a certain point and you've written these books and you want to share that with other people. Several people here, I see Erwin and Sue Richmond sitting here now, uh, several people here uh, were early readers of the book, but 
aside from my family and Irwin and Sue and one or two other people, there were very few other people who I'd shared this story with. And you want other people to read that book. So yes, you start thinking to yourself, well, if I can't get a, uh, a publisher to publish it, maybe I'll self-publish. And self-publication is both easier than it's ever been and harder than it's ever been. It's easier in the sense that you go on to uh, Amazon and Amazon has a whole uh, service that they provide uh, where they will publish the book for you. And, uh, and they'll do both a Kindle version and they'll do a, a paperback version. But everything falls then, so that's the easy part. That, they can publish your book in two days. But then everything falls on the writer to do all of the marketing, to do all of the um, uh, editing, all of the graphic design, uh, arrange, for the, uh, arrange for the cover, everything falls on the author to do. So it ends up becoming a gigantic uh, burden on the author. And I've talked to many people who are, who've written phenomenal books, great books that are self-published books. And I know that it's a gigantic burden on them. So that becomes even harder than it's ever been. Plus, there's so many books now that are self-published that there's a lot of competition out there in the self-published world. Mm -hmm. ha have you had the book reviewed anywhere? Um, I've had, Kirkus Reviews has given me some nice language, some nice words. Mm -hmm. And, um, other than that, I've had some uh, blurbs from some uh, well-known writers in the thriller genre. Mm -hmm. uh, so Jeff Gunnis, who's an up-and-coming rising star uh, writer, has uh, given me a nice blurb. And uh, Doug Lyle, who is, a, I think, a pretty well-known uh, thriller writer, Don Heelan, they've all given me uh, nice words. And also, at this point now, I hate to mention the word Amazon uh, too loudly in a bookstore. Oh, Alex is covering his ears. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they, uh, I now have uh, 20 uh, reviews on Amazon. Right. 19 of them are five-star reviews, and one of them is a four-star review. And, and uh, I know that some of you are in here who provided some of those reviews, and I am deeply uh, touched by that, and I very much appreciate it. I really do. Okay. Um, I'm sure there's some aspiring novelists in the audience tonight. So do you have any advice uh, for them on first what it takes to write a novel? And then, uh, and you've touched on this a little bit, second, what, what, what it takes to actually get the novel published? Why don't we focus on the first of those questions? If, you, if someone came to you and said, I've got a novel, I'm working on a draft of it, I'm getting frustrated, it doesn't seem to be going anywhere, what would you tell them to keep them going? The, um well, I'm going to go one step before that, and that is I've had many people come up to me and they say, oh, you wrote a novel. That's great. I want to write a novel. I've got this idea in my head. Yes. Uh, so I figure I'll, I'll spend a week or two and I'll write the novel. Right. And, and I've had several people actually say something like that to me. And uh, it, it requires, like I said before, I was very, very seriously writing. It's not something that you can do you know, once every two weeks or after football season and before you know, March Madness. I mean, it's something that you've really got to devote your time to. So I would say that the first thing that I would tell anybody is just write. You know, sit down and write and be serious about it and do it on a regular basis. Do it every day. Uh, don't, let, don't let a day or two go by without writing. Spend hours doing it, and you just have to, you just have to do it. You just have to sit down and do it. Uh, that's, that's really the best thing that I can say to you. And the other thing, too, is... If you really believe in the story that you're writing, and if your characters, if you've got a story and you really want your character's story to be told, you know, you've just got to stick with it. And it's just, it's just being uh, relentless, really, and never giving up. And uh, I know uh, both of my daughters, I've given them, uh, you know, little uh, 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 magnetic stickers for their uh, 
refrigerator doors, that very famous, very, very brief um, uh, speech given by Winston Churchill, never give in, never, 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 never. And that's the way you've got to be with a, with a novel. Yeah. Has anybody approached you and said, um, I've got a great idea for a novel, C could you write it for me? Uh, yes, actually already I've had somebody say that yeah. to me about okay. a week ago. Somebody yeah. called me up and said, oh, I saw you wrote a novel. I've got a great idea. Let's talk. And he gave me a little a bit of an idea for it. Right. He said, how would you like to write it for me? And I said, eh, I'm kind of busy on my own stuff right <laughs> now. Right. Thank you. <laughs> or, or the other line is, I have a great idea for a novel. I just have to write it down. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so now that your novel has been published, uh, what, what's the best thing about this experience? Because um, I'm sure you anticipated what it would be like to finally see a book that you had written in print and, uh, and you know, work of fiction out in the world. So what, what's been the best thing about it? First of all, it's been entirely different than what I expected. Oh. And um, I, I would say that um, you, know, you, you write this story and you just want to share it with people. You, just want, you think I've, you've written a good story and you want other people to read it. You want other people to uh, experience the, the story that you've come up with. You want your characters to talk, not just to you, but to others as well. And, uh, and, and, and when you start realizing that other people, in fact, are reading your story, it's both a really gratifying experience and it's scary as hell. Because uh, you, know, you, you, you put some of your inner thinking and some of your mind into, into that story, and of course, if there's anything in there that's embarrassing or that looks like me or Gail, that's all fiction. And um, if there's um, anything in there, you know, that is really, really erudite and smart, then it's absolutely what I okay. was thinking. Yeah, okay. um, but you, you know, there, there's a, an, a bit of anxiety that goes into it because you release this thing into the world. And it's one thing when you show it to your family who's always going to say it's great and to a few friends who may be a little more difficult with you. Um, but there's some anxiety associated with that. But I will say that um, uh, when, it, you know, when, you walk, when you walk into a bookstore and there's your book sitting on the counter, uh, that's, that's a pretty awesome thing. And um, when you, know, you, you see reviews and uh, people are reading the book and appreciating what you've done, that's a very awesome thing. And it's also a very humbling experience. Um, my experience has been very humbling. One of the things that I did uh, early on uh, at, the, at the suggestion of a, a person who markets books was I developed a mailing list and I used Constant Contact. And I sent out a uh, number of mailings on Constant Contact. Some of you probably have received them, my newsletters. And one of the things that this, um, uh, that this publicist suggests, his name is uh, Bob Eager, suggests is get a launch team in place so that people can read your book before it comes out or right as it comes out and that they'll you know, they'll, they'll leave reviews on Amazon. And so I, I sent out a notice and I said, I'm looking for people to be on my launch team. Honestly, I thought, maybe if I get five or six people on my launch team, that'll be really pretty awesome. I have 64 people who signed up to be on my launch team. Yeah, I mean, that, that is, it is a humbling experience. I just have to tell you, it's, it's just humbling. And um, I know people are reading it. So far, I've gotten 20 reviews. Um, I, I don't expect everybody to you know, follow through, but it, it's, it's, a lot of it's very humbling, I have to say. Yeah. Was there anything about people's reactions to the book that surprised you? Because you, you write the book, and you have a certain impression of what the book is all about in your mind, but y you can't control how people are going to respond to it. Did anybody read it in a way that surprised you or, or tell you anything that you didn't really appreciate about your own book? 
Um, I have a main character named Mike Jacobs, and many of you have read the book, you know, you know that Mike is a um, bit complicated, he's a bit immature, he's got to do some growing up in the story, and he does a lot of growing up as a result of uh, things that happen around him and his, and his effort to grow up. And I've had some interesting reactions to Mike. Mike does not handle certain things all that well. Yes. And that was very intentional. It was intentional on my part that he both be a bit of a bumbler so far as the law is concerned and a bit of a bumbler so far as his relationships with women is concerned. And I wanted to show him growing throughout the story. And I've already uh, finished the next book, which is called A Mid-Rage, coming to a bookstore near you. And uh, Mike continues to grow in that story, too. Um, but the reaction that I've had to Mike has been an interesting thing. It's not necessarily the reaction that I expected, because I was hoping that everybody would see that Mike was growing in this story, even as he was faltering, and uh, that even though he made some awful mistakes uh, in the story, that, that he was learning from that, uh, despite, despite those mistakes. Okay. And you said you have one, at least one sequel to this novel planned? Um, I've finished completely the next book, which is called Amid Rage. So this first book is about uh, dumping of toxic waste. The next book is about a psychotic mine operator. And uh, Mike is uh, in the middle of a uh, permit dispute uh, between the mine operator and also the local citizens group. And Mike is stuck right in the middle of that, uh, right in the middle of that um, dispute. And uh, the third book, called uh, Strange Fire um, is about fracking. Um, some of you probably know, maybe many of you know, that I have a vision problem, and as a result of that, I had to retire from the practice of law. And one of the things that I decided to do was to make sure that I still could do things that were um, difficult things to do. And so I wrote Strange Fire after I became legally blind. I wrote that book in uh, seven weeks. Mm. which is the fastest that I've ever written anything. So Strange Fire is the third book in that series that's about fracking. That requires a lot more rewrite. I've actually already started the fourth book in the series, um, which is called um, The Firebrand. And that book's about half done, and probably will remain half done for a while while I work on the next two books. Okay. Well, you brought up a subject that uh, I wanted to ask you about, and I think we'll wrap up the interview at this point and, and open the floor to questions from the audience, and that is uh, you've had this deal with a very serious health challenge that arose while you were in the course of getting this novel published. I guess it was after you had actually written the novel, but before publication. So uh, tell the audience a little bit about that. So um, in July of 2016, uh, in my left eye, I came down with a disease called, not ready for this, non-arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy, uh, which is sometimes referred to as a stroke of the eye. And um, it, it resulted in um, me losing the ability to be able to read and to see clearly out of my eye. And the glasses really don't do very much, to be honest with you. They correct your vision, but my vision is not capable of being corrected. Um, and so long as it was only in one eye, it wasn't a terrible situation because my right eye, which I was calling my good eye, uh, was taking over for me. Uh, in, I remember the day well, it was uh, January 7, uh, 2018, I was on my way to Oklahoma City to visit a client, and uh, my right eye started to become afflicted with the disease, and uh, got to Oklahoma City, I knew I was in the middle of this, turned around and came back the next day, went to my docs, and uh, they confirmed that in fact I had the disease in my right eye, and now I refer to my right eye as the eye formerly known as my good eye, which is now my worse eye. 
I, I'm actually pretty blind from about here down. I really can't see anything at all. And my vision up here in my right eye is very fuzzy. So it's really affected my ability to read. I really can't read paper very well at all. And it's a struggle to read paper. Fortunately for me, uh, I can read um, screens. So if I you know, can enlarge the screen, if I can brighten the screen, I have a monitor that's a yard wide. That helps. And I use uh, certain um, uh, uh, fonts that are pretty wide. It's, it's not so much the height of the font as it is the width of the font for me. Uh, as I alluded to before, um, the disease, the progression of the disease lasts from about six to eight weeks. So it started for me at the beginning of January. By the end of February, the disease had run its course, and I was left uh, legally blind. And I don't drive any longer either, for that matter. Mm -hmm. um, so um, the beginning of March, I was moping around, and I decided I had to do something that, you know, presumably a blind people would have, a person would have a very difficult time doing. And I decided, okay, well, I'm a kind of a novelist. I ought to be able to write a novel even though I'm blind. Mm -hmm. So for the next seven weeks, I was just like on a tear. And I wrote uh, Strange Fire in seven weeks. And um, I'm very proud of that. It, it still requires, like I said, it still requires a fair amount of work. Uh, but I did that um, really to spite my blindness. Okay. Okay, with that, we'll wrap it and open the floor to questions. Alex Yeah, has let's give it up for Joel. We're going we're gonna to open it up to questions, so if you have a question, just feel free to raise your hand. I've got the mic, and I'll be running around, and we're going to start up on the balcony, so just give me one minute to run up there. Okay. All right, you got it? You can yell? Oh, very good question. Uh, Drink to Every Beast uh, comes from the 104th Psalm. Uh, the 104th Psalm is sort of a restatement of Genesis, and... Um, it's, it's very flowery and it's very, um, it's very much like a poem about uh, the creation of the earth. And at one point it says, uh, God created the springs which uh, give drink to every beast of the, of the plain. And I thought, oh, isn't this lovely? And, that's a, and the, my story is about water and contamination of water. And then at the very end, after going through all this flowery poetry, at the very end it says, let the sinners cease from the face of the earth. And I thought, whoa, where'd that come from? I thought, well, that's sort of my book. On the one hand, you've got uh, the creation of water and, and this beautiful language about water and, and uh, God creating the water. And then you've got, you know, let sinners cease from the face of the earth. And I thought that was a, that was a good uh, way to uh, reference both of those things. Uh, I recognize the voice. That's my brother, Peter, Judge Peter Burkhat up there. Thank you, Peter. Okay. Any other questions? go about structuring the novel? Do you do an outline? Do you just write, you know, freestyle? That's a great question. And in fact, you have asked one of the perennial questions of novelists. Uh, do you outline a, uh, a story or do you uh, write by the seat of your pants? And that's, that's what they're referred to, pantsers, what, what people who write by the seat of their pants are referred to in the uh, novel writing business. When I wrote this story, it was outlined. And um, uh, there are actually several stories going on. So in addition to Mike's story, uh, there's a, uh, a, a deputy attorney general named Sherry Stein. And Sherry is, has also got her own story going on. And I wanted to blend those two stories together. So it was very important for me to make sure that the two stories coincided because uh, 
you know, although I talk about Mike a lot, and although the focus is on Mike, it's also Sherry's story as well. Uh, she's investigating the wife of one of the gubernatorial candidates from Wilkesbury, and uh, um, you know, her story is a very important part of the, the story. So I, I outlined it pretty carefully. And over time, I've done less and less outlining. And when I actually wrote um, Strange Fire, uh, I didn't use an outline at all. So I, I think I've moved from writing an extensive outline, which I did in my very first novel, which I did in this novel, to less of one in the third. And, and then uh, in my last novel, I didn't write one at all. Actually, I did something. When I was moving in that direction, the next novel that I wrote, there's one more novel that I've written called Little Brother. And Little Brother is uh, uh, not about you, Bruce, uh, or Peter. Um, but Little Brother is about a time about 15 years in the future uh, when a local police department goes to war with the FBI. Who knew? And um, uh, I got about halfway through the novel, and I'd been following a pretty extensive outline, and I knew exactly how I wanted the novel to end. So I thought, well, I'll just write the end of the story. I still had about 100 pages to write, and it was one of the best things I ever did because all I had to do was just sort of connect the dots. So I, I had an outline for the first half of the book, I wrote the last chapter, and then I just connected the dots. So at this point now, I would say I'm more of a seat of the pantser kind of guy than an, than an outline kind of guy. That's great. Yes. That's it. Let him bring the microphone over. <clears throat> Are there any parts of the story that you had to cut out during the editing process that you wish could have made it into the final bit, but it just didn't fit? Um, that actually happens all the time. When you write something and initially you think it's just the best stuff you've ever written, and then you take a look at it later on and you say to yourself, you know what, this really stinks. It's pretty bad stuff. And you take it out, or it just doesn't fit any longer, or it, it's too much of a distraction from the main story and you take that out. I, uh, in, in Strange Fire, I wrote a whole chapter that I thought was just terrific um, about sort of the tension between the locals and uh, the oil and gas company people. And then as I got about halfway into the story, I realized it didn't fit any longer, so I took that out. So, but that happens all the time, both in terms of paragraphs, sentences, and even whole chapters. And um, when Jason was editing the book, he did a lot of cutting. Um, and uh, we would go back over it at times, and there were times I didn't agree with his edits, but you know he was trying to tighten things up for me, and tightening it up sometimes, I would lose sentences and paragraphs. So when you, you <coughs> cut things, do you, do you ever throw anything away? Never, never, okay. never, never. I have, um, I have very extensive um, outtake files. Okay. So I never, I never throw it out, because I, I will remember someday that I wrote this great, these great words, right. and I'll come, I may want to come back to them. Right. So um, as I'm, if I do cut something out, and like I said, that happens all the time, I throw that into my outtake file, and I yeah. have a different outtake file for each novel. Yeah, I th that, that's a tip that I think most writers I've heard from agree on, that any, anything can be reused someday, so never throw anything away. Right. Right, and computers make that very easy. Right, it is. Got a Got question on the stairs? Yeah, okay. I have a sensitive question. Um, I love the book. I'm halfway through it. And I, I find it hard to put it down at night, but I need to be in bed by 10 o'clock. Um, and you are the least misogynist 
man I know other than my husband. But I'm wondering why you describe women so sexually and not the men. Hmm. Oh, that's a great question. Um, uh, the book wait, is. Can, wait, can I object to that question? <laughs> oh wait, I'm not. I'm not a lawyer. Uh, overruled. Okay, the judge has overruled me. Okay. Um, part of it is the um, uh, the perspective of the book. The book is really written from uh, Mike's point of view, and so you're really seeing much of it from Mike's uh, perspective. And even when he's not in a chapter, it's uh, very often from Mike's point of view. Um, I'm, I'm writing in a particular genre where I think that that has been kind of the expectation over years. And not that I'm, not that I'm trying to write to the genre, but um, there's, there certainly is that element of it. But uh, you may be pointing something out that I'm not aware of also, that I'll pay more attention to. Okay. Any other questions? Joe, as you put the, the uh, novel together, and you have these main characters, you say Mike and Sherry, is there one chapter devoted to Mike, and then one to Sherry, then one to Mike, or have you woven them all together? Uh, both. Uh, Mike and Sherry appear together in a number of chapters, and uh, there are chapters where Sherry is not at all in the story, uh, and it's just Mike, and then there are chapters where it's really just Sherry's story, and uh, we're following Sherry's investigation of the, uh, the uh, district attorney of, of uh, Luzerne County's wife. So there are chapters where all those three things are going on. I would say um, that those are really the only three instances. There may be some other instances where there are there's some other people who do get their own chapter, but for the most part, that's how it was written. And that was part of the outlining thing, too, was trying to keep all of that straight. There, one, all right, one more question. I'm, I'm very interested in the, um, the fracking novel, and I don't want you to reveal too much, but I'm curious um, the, the tone of that. Are, 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 you, are you leaning towards uh, what could ultimately happen, um, earthquake-related kind of things, um, you know, something catastrophic, as you talked about, um, and because it seemed like five, six, seven years ago, this was a big topic, but now it seems to have died off. And is that something that maybe you're trying to bring back, bring people's attention to again? One of the things that I try to do in my novels uh, on these environmental issues is I try to educate people. And um, in, the, in the fracking novel, I'm trying to present all different kinds of people. So there are citizens who are uh, genuinely concerned and genuinely impacted by, uh, by drilling and fracking. There are citizens who aren't at all impacted by it um, and who are you know, not such great people. Uh, there are oil and gas uh, people who are you know, very, um, I don't know, very uh, despicable people. And then there are some oil and gas people who are, are pretty good guys. So I'm, and I'm trying to educate people on that subject. I, I know a lot about oil and gas drilling because of the work that I've done over the years as a lawyer. And uh, I'm trying to educate people on all of those issues. At the same time, telling a story that I hope is an interesting story. Can we give a big and round of applause? And trying not to be misogynist, too. 
Can we give a big round of applause for Joel? You have been listening to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button to keep up to date on all our newest author talks. After every event, there are limited quantities of signed copies of the featured books. Don't forget to grab your copy today. If you would like more information on Midtown Scholar Bookstore, please visit midtownscholar.com. The Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast is a free podcast and does not own the rights to any of the readings. <laughs>